Did you enjoy Team Kasaka for worship? Yes. Yes. Sam and Jean, they're just special, special. I've known them since before they were born. <laughs> Watching them grow up has been an absolute joy. Well, we're in our series on spiritual gifts. <clears throat> if you're following your uh, lesson plan, if you still have it with you, we're in the 12th chapter of Romans where Paul addresses the whole issue of spiritual gifts. And uh, how many know that I'm technologically hindered? <laughs> so I have my own special iPad. <laughs> See how it, it just turns on all by itself. <laughs> if you've been in my class, Hope 101, uh, you know, when we get to Romans chapter 12, I... I draw some diagrams to hopefully illustrate the principles that Paul uh, teaches in those first two verses. So I'm going to use that again tonight. And uh, hopefully it will benefit you. If you have some, uh, in your notes, you have some diagrams that will fill in those blanks for you. So we'll just read with me the, the first eight verses of chapter 12. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers... In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is leading, let him lead. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. We've been talking about spiritual gifts and both uh, Pastor Andrew and Pastor Michael have shared with you the past couple of weeks that in Paul's letters they're broken up into two sections. The first section largely is doctrine, a statement of fact and truth and then the second part would be uh, application and they've used two grammatical terms. What are the grammatical terms to describe how Paul divides his letters? What's the first part? That's right, indicatives. And what's the second part? Imperative. Imperatives. So he does so here in the book of Romans. And chapter 12 starts the imperative section. So the first 11 chapters of Paul's letter here to the church at Rome, those first 11 chapters are all a testimony, a statement of truth, a description of, as he says here in verse 1, God's mercy. And now he begins the application. And that beginning of application starts with that one word, therefore. So he says, based on everything I've told you up to this point, 
Therefore, this is how you should live. And he starts off and he says to us, in view of God's wrath, in view of God's judgment, in view of his anger, no, no, in view of his what? His mercy. God, thank you for being merciful to me. Has he been merciful to you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Jeremiah says in Lamentations that his mercies are new every moment. They're new every moment. When God describes himself to Moses back in the book of Exodus, he describes himself as being merciful, compassionate, gracious, forgiving, just, righteous. He's merciful. He's merciful. So Paul says, in view of his mercy, what should we do? What should we do? In view of his mercy. Offer our body as what? Living sacrifices. Now I want to suggest something to you. While we may earnestly desire and, and, and try really to be consistent at offering our bodies as living sacrifices, I think we will not unless we are keeping in view his mercy. God, you've been merciful to me. I lay my head on my pillow every night and I thank him for his mercy. When I rise in the morning, I thank him for his mercy. I'm consciously and constantly aware that he is merciful and he has been merciful to me. And I think that if we, if we don't keep that in the forefront of our thinking, as Christians, should we? Yes. Do we often? No, we, we get distracted by all sorts of things. But I suggest to you and I submit to you that if we were to more consistently keep in view in the forefront of our thinking his mercy to us, it would make it much more easy and much more consistent for us to then respond by offering our bodies as living sacrifices. If we don't, if we don't keep his mercy, we're in the forefront of our thinking. Chances are we're going to be thinking about other things, easily distracted, doing what he says not to do, being conformed to the pattern of this world. When someone is, has been incredibly gracious to you, they've gone beyond the pale to help you to do things that you could not possibly do for yourself. They have rescued you and saved you. How do you respond to that person? Yeah, well, you say, thank you. I, I could never repay you. I'm eternally in your debt. Do we say things like that? Yes. Or at least we expect, express that kind of sentiment? We should, huh? And is that person in our minds a lot? Yes. What they've done for us? Oh, yes. And we would never, ever think of abusing that relationship. Oh, you've, you, you've been just unbelievable to me. You've helped me in such incredible ways. And so we want to respond to them. 
and they rise in our estimation. And, and the same thing is, is with the Lord. When we recognize and acknowledge on a consistent basis his mercy to us, our only response, Paul says, is that we should offer our body as a living sacrifice. Now, when he uses the term body, he means the entire person. We are integrated beings. We're body, soul, and spirit. I am a spiritual being living in an earth suit, a soulish earth suit, physical earth suit. I can't separate out my spirit from my soul from my body. We're, I'm an integrated being. And so when he talks about offering my body, he's really talking about the entire person that I am in every arena of life. And I sat down and I tried to figure out and count the arenas of life. I came up with 10 arenas. I think this about covers all of life. Let me just give you the list. Marital and family relationships. Would it be a fair statement to say that we should be living sacrifices in our marriages, in our family relationships? We should be laying our life down for one another as Christians. Jesus is the model, right? He didn't come to be served, but rather he came to what? Serve, give his life a ransom for many. Husbands are what? To lay their lives down for their wife, as Christ did for the church. Wives are supposed to show the respect of their husbands. Children are supposed to respect their parents. Parents are, are, are supposed to, to not aggravate their children. All of this speaks to that issue of uh, being a living sacrifice. Social and friend, friendship relationships. The relationships outside the immediate family. We're to live our life in such a manner as our lives are testimonies to those who are outside us, whether they're believers or not. All of our social relationships. Our work, our occupation. Do I do my work, my job, my occupation as unto the Lord? If I'm an employee, am I employee as unto the Lord? Do I honor my boss? If I'm an employer, do I take good care of my employees? Finances. Do I handle my finances? Really, do I handle his finances in a manner that's pleasing to him? Or is it my money to do with as I please? No. So it's another arena of life in which I am to be a living sacrifice. My spiritual life, sexual activity, my sexual life, that's an area of life. That's a big area of life. Would you agree? My recreational life. Do I recreate as unto the Lord? Wow, what does that mean? It means that you simply want to honor God by how you recreate and what you recreate in. Your physical health, you take good care of the temple of the Holy Spirit, the body in which he's given you. 
How about your leisure activity? And just generally routine responsibilities. All of these are arenas of living in which we are to, with our entire being, offer him a sacrifice. Now that word sacrifice scares some people. You hear the word sacrifice. Oh, if, I, if, I just, if I'm all in, if I really sacrifice, if I, if I give it all up, I just know he's going to make me a missionary. He's going to make me to go to some aboriginal jungle someplace and eat bugs. No, he won't. Not unless he's already prepared that before you, before the foundation of the world, and he'll give you the very desire to do that. He's not going to drag you kicking and screaming into some missionary outpost. But you want, to, you want to learn. We all want to learn what it means to really kind of abandon ourselves to him. True? Not to coin a new phrase, but to be what? All in. That's a living sacrifice. Notice, it's a living sacrifice as opposed to the dead sacrifices the Jews would offer and all the pagan religions participated in. So this whole idea of sacrifice was not something new, but all the pagans who gotten saved and as well the, the Jews who gotten saved were familiar with the sacrificial systems of their respective religious practices, their cultic practices. And so Paul says, don't offer a dead sacrifice, offer a living sacrifice. Someone once said the problem with a living sacrifice is when you get it on the altar, it wants to what? Wiggle off. How many times have people made commitments? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. You've heard a, a, a message, a teaching, a sermon that's really stirred you and you've stirred you to make a choice and a decision Sunday morning or Saturday night. And you're going, yes, I'm in, I'm in. And then comes Monday or Tuesday. You find yourself wiggling off the altar. You find yourself counting the cost. You see, it's not only what we give that God demands. He demands the giver. He demands us. So he tells us, offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Again, I'll say to you, you will not do that with any great consistency unless you continue to keep in view his what? Mercy. His mercy. It's got to be in the forefront of our thinking. Should we be thinking about him all the time? Yeah, how many have ever been in love? Oh, just a few of you. I'm sorry. Matt, you did raise your hand, didn't you? Okay. I, th- I mean, when you're in love, you can't do anything but think about that other person. Isn't that true? You've just spent the whole day with that person, and then you, you, they go home, or you go home, and you get on the phone, and you can't hardly wait to talk to them again. Obviously, that's a caricature, but you understand what I'm saying. When you really love God, you're thinking about him all the time. You're thinking about him all the time. You're thinking about his mercy to you. You can't say thank you enough for his mercy. That, I submit to you, is the impetus to offer your body a living sacrifice. It's not just an imperative command. It's something that has to have something behind it. To incentivize us is an impetus. Am I making sense? 
And then he says in verse 2, he says, we are not to do something. What are we not to do? We're not to conform any longer to what? The pattern of this world. What does it mean to conform to the pattern of this world? Are, are we affectionate for this world, affectionate for the things of this world, this life? We acquire things. We, we, we live our life really focused primarily on this life. Getting ahead, making money, using our time, largely for the things of this world. And what ends up happening is the things of the kingdom of God, the eternal life, come at our periphery of our life. We do them if we have time. We participate in the kingdom if we have time. They're kind of add-ons, if you will, because really my life is spent in this life. He says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Don't let the world seduce you. Don't be affectionate for this world because it is what? It's passing away. These are more than just words. Peter tells us there were sojourners. This is not our home. We're passing through. If you're not a believer, this is all you have. And you're going to be totally invested. But then when you become a believer, you have to make a transition in your life and in your thinking, what you've been so used to holding on to, now you hold on to lightly and you shift your loyalties and you shift your commitments and your energies and your efforts to the kingdom of God. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Now I'm going to go to my tablet. You should be able to see it on the screens. There you are. Is this cool? Just technology? Am I using technology? All right. If you look at your notes, you see the circle in your notes, right? And there's an arrow from that circle. It's going the other way. Okay, well, it's going this way. You get the idea. Details. All right. He says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but what? Be what? Be transformed how? By the renewing of your mind. Okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just make this circle represent my mind. The Greek word is nous. And it really is the intellectual aspect of me. And it's with my mind that I evaluate people and events that are external to me. Is that true? So I see somebody or I, I observe an event or I make some kind of judgment with my mind. True? And my judgments very often are colored, are they not? Everyone carries biases with them. Now he says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Or I'm going to suggest this world system. Can you see that okay? Oh, that, that looks good, doesn't it? 
Who's behind the world system? Satan. Satan is behind the world system. I'm forever telling people, you do not need to be afraid of the devil. People go, oh, but they've watched all the Hollywood movies. They've watched all these scary movies, and, and they're afraid of the devil. You do not be, need to be afraid of the devil. The Bible says, resist him, and he'll flee. He's like a bad dream or a bad boyfriend. You gals know about that. Just ignore the guy. He'll leave you alone. The more you pay attention to him, the more he's going to get on your case. He is behind the world system. You know, years ago, there was this, this movement called the New Age Movement. How many know that? How many recognize that? There's nothing new under the sun. The New Age Movement was really nothing more than repackaged ancient pagan mysticism. And everything that comes down the pike, every new book, every new philosophy, every new theory is nothing more than repackaged something from before. And it's all part of the world system. Everyone's coming up with their ideas on how you can have it all. And so, Paul says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world because we know who's behind it. And he wants to affect you where? In your thinking. He is called, among other things, the deceiver. All he has to do is fake you out. All he has to do is deceive you. And you're defenseless. That's all he does. I very often, when I do this in my class, in my Discover Hope class, I encourage people, I say, look, if, you're, if your Christianity, if your faith is not vibrant, if you're not excited about the Lord and, and walking with him, and it's just kind of mundane, day-to-day, boring, ho-hum, I submit to you it's because you're too affected by the world. Now, you're going to argue with me. Say, well, no, no, I'm not. I'm not affected by the world. Yes, you are. And to prove that, I challenge you to go on a six-month fast from all media. Yeah, right. (laughs) Ooh. Six-month fast. Turn off the television. Cancel your newspaper, your magazine subscriptions. Turn off your radio. Well, pastor, I need to be informed. You need to be informed or indoctrinated. You're just getting stuff spun at you. You don't don't need that. Well, I need to know who's president. Why? You need to know who's king. Well, if I I fasted from all that, if I fasted from TV and and radio and, and my newspaper, oh my gosh, what would I do in the morning with my cup of coffee? I have a novel idea. Read your Bible. You have plenty of time on your hands then, don't you? Prayer. Bible reading, if not Bible study. Fellowship. Service. You could devote your life to a lot because I submit to you that a lot of time is wasted in those other pursuits. 
and they only affect you in such a way as to dull your faith. You have to ask yourself, how enthusiastic am I about participating in the life of the church? How enthusiastic am I about serving? How enthusiastic am I about uh, studying my Bible? And your own answers indicate where you are on that continuum. You can say, I want to be enthusiastic. I hope to be enthusiastic. But you'll never get there unless you make some hard choices. But you'll never make that choice unless you have first in view his what? His mercy. The whole process doesn't even start. You can know the gospel. You can know the truth. You can articulate the gospel. But if you don't have a, a profound appreciation and value, and it's always in the front of your mind, and you're, not, and you're always thanking him, I promise you, you will never undergo his process of transformation. Now, people say, well, well how, do, how do I counter this? How many know that he's unrelenting? He keeps coming, keeps coming, keeps coming, keeps coming. The world keeps coming at us, doesn't it? How do we counter that? How many have the Holy Spirit living in them? If you're a Christian, the Bible says the Holy Spirit's alive in you. He works through the world system. The Holy Spirit works through the, what do you think? Works through the word. You think it's important to read your Bible? And what does he do? He renews your what? Your mind. And as a result, he transforms your life. The verbs are really participial forms, uh, renewing and transform, and their passive voice is something that happens to you. It's not something you, you don't renew your own mind, and you don't transform your own life. I'm forever hearing people say, ah, I'm working on myself. I said, well, good for you. That relieves God of that responsibility, doesn't it? You're, you, there's no way you can change yourself. You're too biased. You have to submit to God and submit to his spirit and his spirit working through the word as you spend time in his word. He renews your mind. He teaches you the truth. You go, oh, oh. I've been reading about all the sacrifices in the Old Testament these past days in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Numbers, and uh, just profound the, the impact it's had on my life. And, and it just causes me to think again about the one final sacrifice that took the place of all those sacrifices the Old Testament. Jesus. So you don't have to undo all this stuff. You just displace it with the truth. When you go to your therapist, your therapist is going to want you to rummage around here 
and, and find out all this stuff. You just ignore that. You, you trust the Holy Spirit living in you to take his word, which is what? Alive, sharper than a double-edged sword, to renew your mind. As you begin to think differently, now how are you going to evaluate people and events external to you? Differently? Yeah, you're going to be a transformed person. Look with me at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. God renews your mind and he transforms your life. God does it. You don't. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being what? Transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. And he goes on, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is God at work in me. Paul says in Romans chapter 18, verse, chapter 8, verse 29, he says that we are being conformed to the likeness of the very image of who? Our big brother Jesus. It's God who's at work. I need to expose myself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. People say to me, how are you? I said, I'm, I'm better. You're better? Were you sick? No, I'm better. What do you mean? God's making me better every day, right? Being renewed day by day. I'm better than I was yesterday. Isn't that good news? These are matters of faith. The Bible says it. You, you may not feel it, but the truth is God is changing us and making us more like Jesus incrementally every single day in every single moment. Our part is to submit and to cooperate with him by spending time with him as he renews our mind and hence transforms our life. Now let me draw this another way for you. I have another diagram there for you. Pardon me while I erase. This is where another whiteboard would have come in handy. How many have ever been troubled with problem feelings? Fear. Anxiety, depression. Does that sound familiar to anybody? A few of you? Okay. So let's say problem feelings. Now, where do problem feelings come from? Where do you think they come from? Problem behavior. But where does problem behavior come from? Stinking thinking? Problem. What do you think? Thinking. Proverbs says, as a man thinks, so is he. It's just another way of doing what I did before on the other diagram. 
if I'm just thinking along the way the world tells me to think, if I'm still being conformed to the pattern of this world, I'm going to think that way. It's going to affect my behavior and affect my emotional life. How many realize that the world really doesn't make you happy? How many realize that, that you really do get frustrated? You chase this goal, chase this goal, chase this goal, and you finally achieve the goal, a worldly goal. It doesn't do it for you like you thought it would. So what's the solution? The solution is you become a Christian, you come to Jesus, you get born again, and then you begin to read your Bible. Why would you read your Bible? So that you can think how? You can think biblically. Now, what do you think biblical thinking would lead to? Yeah, not problem behavior. Biblical behavior. And what do you think biblical behavior would lead to? Spirit-controlled feelings. What are spirit-controlled feelings? Who knows? Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? Love. How many would like to be more loving? How would we like to be more joyful? More peace. Love, joy, peace. How many would like to be more patient? Kinder? Gentler? You see? How many would like to be more self-controlled? Yes. Bearing fruit is not something you do based on your own effort. Feelings are always a third order event. One, two, three. Over here, one, two, three. Spirit controlled feelings. The fruit of the Holy Spirit. This stuff just happens, doesn't it? Do you set out in the day to, to be depressed? Do you set out in the day, you wake up in the morning and say, oh, I'm going to be anxious today. I'm going to work hard to be anxious. No. Your thinking that led to certain behavior has led to this anxiety, this fear, depression, whatever it is. And the same thing is true over here. But now you have the Holy Spirit living in your life. Now you're exposing yourself to the truth. You're reading his word. And you read his word. He renews your mind. And that leads to a biblical kind of behavior. The imperatives, if you will. And now you're experiencing fruit. You find yourself to be more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, more kinder, more gentler. Am I making sense? This is, all, this is all very, very important. It's absolutely critical. He says, then, then you're going to be able to do something. What are you going to be able to do when this process is inactive, active in your life? You're going to be able to what? Test and approve what? What God's will is. And how does he characterize God's will? Yeah. The renewed mind now can discern. 
and it can appreciate the very will of God. Before you were a Christian, did you appreciate the will of God? No. Did you even discern the will of God? No. You could, it was the last thing in your mind. But now, with a renewed mind, you can test and approve. You can, you can discern and appreciate God's will. He characterizes his will as what? Yeah, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. All of a sudden, you've been aspiring to something good, pleasing, but now you see now what is really good, what is really pleasing, what is really perfect, it's God's will. How many want to know God's will for their life in more detail? Yeah. I talk to people all the time. All the time. Who are absolutely clueless about God's will for life. Pastor, can you help me discover God's will? I don't know God's will for my life. What do you think I tell them to do? Go on a six-month fast from all media and put that dynamic in practice. You want to know God's will, you'll know God's will. And there will be no doubt about it. He says, you will be able to test and approve. You'll be able to discern it and appreciate it. But if you're still bound up in the world, you're still loving the world, if you're still committed to this world and the things of this world, you will never realize God's will for your life. It's that simple. It is that simple. He says to us, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. Do we typically think of ourselves more highly than we ought? Yes. Does anybody here have a problem with pride? Besides me. Everybody should have their hands up. Pride is the mother of all sin, and it's right there with us every single moment because we're still in this fallen flesh. How many of it's your favorite thing to be ignored and rejected? Your favorite thing? No. You want to be acknowledged, recognized, accepted. Isn't that true? And when you're ignored... Are you a happy camper? No. Over the years, people, most of you know I work really hard to learn who you are, learn your name, and be able to acknowledge you and greet you and welcome you and all that sort of thing. And every so often, I'll get caught up in a, in a conversation or I'll miss somebody. And they'll walk right past me. And I'll go, uh-oh, because I know what's coming. I'm going to get a letter. <laughs> They're mad at me. I promise you, it happens. And I think, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. So I send them off a letter. I, make, I mail a little card or I, I make a phone call real quick, say, you know, please forgive me. I was wrong. I, I, I just I have no excuse. I had a lady last night. Waited till after the service. 
to talk to me. <laughs> when you have a renewed mind, you can now begin to recognize, appreciate, discern God's will. And also with this renewed mind, you are now capable of evaluating yourself, your true identity, and your gifts. If your mind isn't renewed, your life isn't being transformed, all the rest of this is, means absolutely nothing. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 are some of the most important verses you could ever memorize in your Christian experience. You see, a renewed mind is a humble mind, isn't it? Like whose? Like Christ. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Have the same mindset of Christ had. And though he was God, he thought not it, it thought not it something that he, he retains his godly prerogatives, my words. He divested himself. He came here and lived as a man, totally vulnerable, dependent upon the Holy Spirit, just like you and I are. And he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Living sacrifice. No longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so in verses 3 through 8, we see this, this call, call to humility. It's a foregone conclusion that typically we think of ourselves more highly than we ought. It's a call to humility and unity. All of this, the result of transformation. What analogy does Paul use to describe his church? Verses 4 and 5. What analogy does he use? Just as each of us has one body with many members, these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we who are many form what? One body, and we are all members, we all belong to each other. He uses the analogy of a body, a human body. I have a body, you have a body, and the body is made up of many parts, right? Do all the parts have the same function? No. But if one or two parts aren't functioning optimally, is this body now hindered? Is it disabled in some way? Is it our intent for our bodies to function optimally? Yeah. If it's my intent for my body, my physical body to operate, function, then all the parts have to be operating. But if somebody doesn't know where they fit in the body, then the body is hindered, isn't it? If somebody is not undergoing this transformation process and recognizing where they fit and how they're gifted, the body is going to be hindered, disabled. Now we're going to get into more depths on the gifts in the next three or four weeks when we get into 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. But Paul is introducing us here to a sampling of gifts, seven particularly. So 
He identifies the church as a body with many, many parts. And guess what? We all belong to one another. We are all interdependent. We need one another. I need you to function in your gift. You need me to function in my gift. We need each other. Because together, the body of Christ moves powerfully, coherently, consistently. Does that make sense? And if members aren't functioning in their gifts, what a tragedy. What a loss. Now, verses 6 through 8, he gives a sample of seven gifts. Two categories, speaking gifts and serving gifts. The speaking gifts are prophecy, teaching, encouraging. The service gifts are serving, contributing, leading, and showing mercy. I've given you a little two-sided handout in in your bulletin. Just some short definitions about these gifts. They're not exhaustive, but they're just simple definitions. Let's just look at them together. Prophecy. This is a special ability to transmit spontaneous, Holy Spirit-given, intelligible messages usually spoken in the gathered church for the edification, encouragement, and consolation of the people. Generally speaking, we function in our gifts where? In your mini-church. That's where people are known. If Anthony Wang stands up and says, I have a prophecy, and no one knows him, He's going to be suspect. But if he's in my mini church and he stands up and he says, I've, God's given me a, a prophetic word. Okay, we, we know him. That word can be validated. Prophecy is a, is a powerful gift. He says, prophets likely equip the saints by calling the church back to biblical values, appropriate emphasis, that ensure the body's wisest and most fruitful ministry. There's a gift of serving. Now, should every Christian be serving? Yeah, but there's a special, apparently, spiritual gift of service that requires someone to take care of material needs and the household duties of the Lord's work so that others are encouraged and strengthened spiritually. Some people have a gift to serve. They just serve. But that doesn't mean that the rest of us shouldn't be serving at some level. Teaching. Teaching is an interesting gift. It requires and involves a keen interest in the personal study of God's word and the capacity to communicate clearly the truths and applications of the word so others may learn and profit. Teachers. We want gifted teachers in our midst. Encouraging. Should everybody encourage? Yeah. In fact, Paul says, encourage one another. He says that a number of times in his letters. But apparently there is a gift of encouragement. 
the capacity to encourage, comfort, and motivate people to action using God's word. Contributing to the needs of others. The capacity to distribute personal resources to the Lord's work and to his people in a very need-sensitive, consistent, generous, cheerful, sacrificial manner. There are people who have a gift to be able to give money away. I've, I've known these people, and God just pours money into their life faster than he can give it away. It's absolutely phenomenal to watch. But should all Christians be generous? Should we all be contributing? Absolutely. The Bible talks about what? Tithes and offerings, doesn't it? We should all be tithing and offering. Just a matter of course of our Christian life. Contributing to what goes on in the life of our church. Leadership. The capacity to stand before others, to guide them, and to catalyze God's people to action in a caring and concerned manner. This gift is to be exercised with diligence and eagerness, not shrinking back. Mercy, the capacity to connect emotionally with the hurting and to give undeserved, compassionate aid, especially to those whom the majority ignores. Those with this gift should exercise it cheerfully. Cheerfully. It's kind of like giving. What kind, of love, what, kind of, what kind of giver does God love? Cheerful. I've had people in the past ask me, well, you know, if I, if I can't give cheerfully, should I still give? <laughs> yes. God would prefer that you be a cheerful giver. If you're going to exhibit mercy and help other people, he would, he would prefer that you do it in a cheerful manner. There's nothing worse than showing mercy to somebody in a grudging manner and have that person notice that. Would you agree? So what's the purpose of God's gifts to his church? To build up the body. All members are what? We're all ministers. And God has gifted each one of us for a specific arena of ministry. The question is, do you know your gifting and are you functioning in your gifting? You don't have to wait till we get to 1 Corinthians to find out what your gifts are. If you're not undergoing this process of transformation, you can start tonight. You can start tonight. You can say, Lord, I am no longer going to allow the world, the world to squeeze me into its mold. I want to know your will for my life. I want to know where I fit in the body of Christ. I do not want the church, the body of Christ, to be disabled because I'm not active. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your gifts. And thank you, most of all, for your mercy. We love you tonight. And we pray, Lord, that those aren't empty words, but they reflect a genuine heart attitude towards you. We give you thanks. We praise you. We pray in Jesus' name. Keep your heads bowed for just another moment. I don't know, but there may be just one person here tonight that doesn't know Jesus. I believe God's brought you here, if that's the case. 
because he wants you to be part of his family. He loves you very much. He loves you so much that he gave his one and only son on that cross for you. All your sins have been punished already. All your sins have been dealt with. All he's waiting is on you to say, yes, Lord, thank you, and surrender your life to him. If you don't know Jesus Christ, he's your Savior, and he's your Lord. You can make that commitment tonight to him, to accept him, simply by holding your hand up real high. Anybody right now, tonight, just lift your hand if you want to make a decision for Jesus. Right down here. Okay, God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else? It's taking one more minute. Way back there? Okay, on the way back in the back. Okay. Anybody else? Just raise your hand now. Way back, back. Way in the back. Okay, good, good. Okay, if you raise your hand, I just want you to, I just want to pray with me. Just make this your prayer. God, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. And I need you in my life. I realize that now. I can't deny it any longer. I don't want to put it off any longer. And I give my life to you. I surrender. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for dying in my place and taking my punishment. And thank you for bringing me salvation. Put your Holy Spirit in me. Cleanse me. Fill me. Begin this process of transformation. I commit my way to you. I commit myself, not to this world any longer, but to this process of transformation through the renewing of my mind. I give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen? Hallelujah. Three new, three new brothers and sisters. We're going to close the service now, and uh, the elders are going to be down front. And if you raise your hand and you made that commitment, you meant it, then when the elders come down, I want you to come down and talk to one of the elders, and they're going to instruct you in your next steps, okay? Let's stand. Church, pronounce a blessing on your neighbor for the whole week. Pronounce a blessing on your neighbor, and let's stand together and sing his praises one more time before we dismiss.